With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 177 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a terrific actress currently playing Dr. Rainbow Johnson on ABC's funny, smart, and edgy sitcom Blackish, a show for which she won this year's Best Actress in a Comedy Series Golden Globe, becoming that category's first black winner since Debbie Allen won for fame 35 years ago, and for which she's Emmy nominated for the second year in a row, also for Best Actress in a Comedy Series, and could become that category's first black winner since Isabel Sanford took home the prize for the Jeffersons 36 years ago, Tracy Ellis Ross. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles, the 44-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, what it was like for her growing up as the daughter of pop star Diana Ross and ultimately following her mother into the arts, how important it was to her after years of rejection and almost quitting the business to land a starring role on Girlfriends, a comedy series that ran on UPN and then the CW between 2000 and 2008, and what impact or lack thereof that show had on her career thereafter, what motivated Kenya Barris, who had been a writer on Girlfriends, to create the show Blackish and, with Ross in mind, the character of Dr. Rainbow Johnson, and why Ross feels the character, a working mom who loves her husband, is so important. Why Ross loves that Blackish is exploring controversial topics like the N-word, police brutality, and mixed race relationships on one of the major broadcast networks and has been receiving major awards recognition for doing so, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Tracy, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate Happy it. Happy to be here. We always begin just with a basic same question which is where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> you finally are going to be our, our one interesting answer. So please. No, are you kidding? <laughs> People have incredible yes. stories on that one. Yes. Let's see. I was born here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. October 29th, 1972, Cedar sinai And I lived here and went to the Center for Early Education until I was about four. Uh, this is going to be sort of interesting. It does bounce around. That's good. Okay, moved to New York so my mom could do the whiz, which brings us into who my parents yes, are. Yes. My mom is Diana Ross, and my father is Robert Ellis Silverstein, hence the Ellis in my name. My yes. father was a music manager at the time when he met my mom. He managed Shaka Khan, Billy Preston. He no longer does that. He is semi-retired. He's a landscaper and also does a lot of different kinds of projects. My yeah. mom is still Diana Rossing. Yes. <laughs> I saw her in Toronto about like two years ago. She's she's, amazing. She's still out Diana Rossing and and being amazing and glamorous (laughs) and gorgeous and epic and, and, you know, all of that. A national world treasure or whatever. But let's see. So I then we moved to New York and I lived in New York until I was 12 years old and went to Dalton School. I then moved to Paris, to the American School in Paris for six months. And then a year and a half at Le Rosé, which is a boarding school in Switzerland. We were in Stade and outside of Geneva and Rolle. 
I learned to speak French there. I don't have as strong of a French anymore. I then came home. This is a big education. Well, why? first of all, why all these moves? Was this just going where... Um, some of it was my mom yeah. sort of living her life and doing different things. Yeah. Some of it has to do had to do with projects. But my mother was a very hands-on and is a very hands-on mother. So I was not raised by nannies or anything. And my mom felt very strongly that if she had to work and base herself in a place that we would go with her. Nice. So when she moved to Europe when I was 12, the intention was she was working on a project which didn't end up happening, a movie project. So we all moved there and went to school there. It's one of the best things that, I mean, my mom, one of the gifts that my mom's gift gave me is I got an extraordinary education that I am very grateful for. And I also was able to live in Europe as a child, which made me feel like a child of the world and mm -hmm. not just an American. Was it tough, though, to on friendships and things to be moving around all the time? Um, you know, I don't know if it was tough, but it was a unique experience. And with it came its own different things. It was leaving at 12. That was a tough age to have been like from four, five years old to 12 at the same school. Yeah. I still have some of those friends, though. To leave at that point was difficult. But what it did actually was, as I said, it sort of made me feel like a child of the of the world. It gave me another language. It also gave me something that I utilize in my career now, which is a sense of finding home within myself and finding and knowing how to find my sense of safety mm. within myself. So I travel a lot for my job. I mm. move around a lot. I'm on different sets. I'm mm -hmm. with different people. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense of how I can be in that without it being scary for me. I came home from Europe at in 10th grade and went to school at Riverdale, which is a school outside of New York, graduated from there. And then I went to Brown University. Now, before you went to Brown University, mm. though, isn't it the case that is that when modeling first entered the picture? Modeling entered the picture. Yes, I was in high school and I had always been like a huge magazine model fan and mm -hmm. clothing and all of that. I just it was uh, style and clothing and stealing my mom's clothes and feeling glamorous and looking yeah. glamorous. Yeah, I come by all that very <laughs> honestly. Was just a huge, big way I expressed myself. And so I thought modeling was the ticket. And I joined Wilhelmina Agency when I was about 16 or 17. I flew to Europe to do the Terry Mugler fashion show for my 18th birthday and continued doing some of that kind of stuff. I did eventually discover that as much as I loved that my interest in modeling was more about my interest in clothing. And mm -hmm. then I ended up working in the fashion industry as a fashion editor. After Brown. After Brown yeah. at Mirabella Magazine and New York Magazine. Mm. And then what I discovered about that was that as much as I loved clothing, that I really was more interested in telling stories. And mm -hmm. so there, but it was like all part of my path of gaining my own confidence, understanding who I was. I was very shy growing up, which is very hard for people to believe. <laughs> and modeling was one of the places that my mom actually pointed out that I started to come alive in front of an audience. Right. Like when I had the photographers and stuff like that, like somehow I had a captive audience <laughs> and I started to come alive. I was always very silly growing up. Yeah. And that was an issue in my household and in school, getting kicked out of class and also kicked out of dinner, sort of. My mom would send me outside the right. glass door and be like, why don't you get your wiggles out out there? So in terms of actually performing, mm. was the first real entree into acting at Brown? High school. Okay. For a long time, my original dream was to be a singer. But I discovered in high school, in my shyness, when I did quite a few talent shows and singing, and now I'm able to articulate that I'm a performer at heart. 
So it wasn't necessarily singing. I liked being on stage and in front of people. Yeah. I like it. Well, I mean, do you think that's potentially a genetic thing or just no because i have five siblings and, and not all of us have that gene but so, so what desire. were you responding to do you think is it like what's the appeal in that for you even at that early point you know that's interesting i don't know i think i i like i like being in front of people yeah i do i like the exchange of that kind of energy the power of that kind of platform i can say this now i don't know that i knew that then I also, you know, there was an element of what I saw in my mom on stage that I was like, like, I want it, you know, Um, mine, mine is different from my mom's. Obviously, I'm not her. I also saw in Carol Burnett and Lily Tomlin and Lucille Ball, other elements of what I connected to about that. And early on for you, it was clear that it was that you had a comedic bent. I don't know that I could have told you that yeah. early on, but I think that's always been yeah. who I was. I mean, you know, my real middle name is Joy. My mom, right. my name is Tracy Joy Silverstein. And my mom said I came out that way. <laughs> like I've been giggly and yeah. silly since I was a kid. That's great, um, right? So, yeah. But so the performing, it started on stage, talent shows, singing, and then the modeling happened. And then in college, I remember taking my first acting class and mostly because you had to choose an art, you know, one of, yeah, one of the requirements. One. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pick one. Yeah. Took a dance class one year, took an right. acting class one year. And there was an exercise they had us do in class that literally lit me up. There was a line, which was, there's a man on a roof and he's going to jump. And we had to say it three different ways with three different emotions. And it was, I just thought it was extraordinary because all of my imagination and creativity and my storytelling ability and my childhood lying ability, like all those (laughs) kinds of things that you try on as a kid, you know what I mean? All came into play. And I was like, oh my God, I just got bit by the bug. And then I started acting all through college. I was a theater concentrator, as we call it at Brown. I did many a play. I did all aspects of theater. I did laundry. I did costumes. I did just everything, uh, lighting, all of it. So as it was becoming clear that this was the direction you were headed in, and as you declared the equivalent of a major in theater, what sort of feedback were you getting at home? I mean, I wonder... Did my mom want me to be a doctor? Well, something like that. (laughs) Is she saying like, because, you know, I can see on one level there. And as you now yourself know, it's it can be really hard, Mm. but it can also be really great. So do you want to spare your kid from even getting into that and just be a normal person? Or so what were you You hearing? My mom is extraordinary in that sense. She really has had a desire with all of her children to cultivate a sense of safety where we could be who we were going to be. Mm-hmm. She didn't have ideas on that. And I think that's why all of us were all so different, but you can tell we were raised by the same mom. <laughs> you know what I mean? So she was very supportive in me discovering what I wanted to be doing and finding who I was and not being intimidated by authority, not like all of those kinds of things, having the courage to sort of go after my dreams. My mom was always like, what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? Who do you want to be? How are you going to get there? Like those were the kinds of things my mom said, or when we came home from school, did you do your best today? Or as we left for school, the most annoying thing by the time we were in, (laughs) you know, high school was, did you make a new friend today? And I remember looking at my mom once and saying, Mom, I know everybody in the school. <laughs> there are no more friends to know. Like, it's it's done, Mom. That's like, so funny. Yeah. She was like, talk to someone you haven't talked to. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> so I, you know, I wonder, you said you started out as this shy kid, at least mm. outside of the home, and now you are very not shy. Very not shy. So I saw an interesting quote prepping for this. Quote, mm. you could chronicle my journey of self-acceptance <laughs> through my journey with my hair. Yeah, close quote. through my relationship with my hair. Talk about that. Let's just talk about it in terms yeah. of my hair. Why don't yeah, we do it that please. way and frame it? Because it kind of makes it an easier conversation. If you look at simply the culture of beauty, which could be a microcosm for the culture that we live in, there is a limited definition that is steeped in racism, sexism, patriarchy, and other things, rape culture, all of it. You could kind of go through through the whole scope. And I didn't know that growing up, but there was a way that I thought I should be. There was a way that I thought my hair should look, that it didn't naturally look. And so as a result, I was sort of beating my hair into submission, attempting to take the texture and the density and the curl and the all of it that was my hair and straighten it and turn it to, into something that I thought was going to be more desirable, which would then make me in turn an object of desire for men so that I could get married and do the one thing that was meant to be my purpose, which was have a child and be a wife. And so that's sort of the limited idea of what my purpose would have been and how I would fit into the mold of what was supposed to make me happy. And as a result, as I said, I was beating my hair into submission, trying to straighten it and do all these things to it. And in fact, what that was doing was the opposite. It was making my hair unhealthy and my hair was actually not able to do all the things that it could do. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I sort of busted through that, which took a lot of grief and pain and disappointment and shame and all of those things, I started to discover my own hair and meet it where it was and actually ask my hair who it was and what it wanted to do with itself and be. And then I started to support my hair in its authentic nature and discover all of the many different things that it was capable of. And now my hair does all of those things. It can be straight, it can be curly, it can be dense, it can be tight back, it can be all of those things. And it's similar to my own self. You know, there were, for a long time, I was attempting to be what I thought I should be, who I thought I should be. And some of it was, I didn't even realize I was sort of in that mode because you don't even know that those external forces are at play. And some things I, I was aware of, some things I wasn't. And it takes a lot of courage to discover who you are and then to trust who that is and then allow that person to actually come out. That's what I no, mean by a that great, journey. It's a great story. And yeah. I, I guess if we were to map the timeline of that mm. over, the, over the overall timeline, mm. does it coincide? Does your acceptance of your physicality coincide with you coming out into the world out of brown, having done this brief period, I guess, of, of working at some magazines and fashion, but now putting yourself out there as an actress seeking work, mm. that can be a vulnerable mm. place to be. It was scary. You have to have thick skin at that point, right? So had you um, already well, developed I don't, it? I don't know that you have to have thick skin. I think you develop it. I think every day is its own journey, you know, every experience, every audition. I mean, I auditioned for years and got nothing. And I think that's what it took. I remember I, ha- I used to keep all my auditions and I had like four three-ring binders and I had not gotten cast in anything. But it was a part of me learning, not only who I am, but who I am in the audition experience, who I am as an actress, who I want to be as an actress, who I want to be as a person. What so was I the didn't, feedback you were getting? What was their problem? Off 
often it was green and I kind of knew that. Yeah. Like I didn't know how to take the me that I was in my bedroom mm -hmm. into a room of other people. And then I remember getting a job and getting fired. And I remember thinking as I was working, like I was so scared, I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't do what I knew I could do. Mm -hmm. You know, I was so blocked. And there were lots of different like lily pad moments throughout my career where I felt like my skin got thicker mm -hmm. or more than that, not that my skin got thicker, that's actually really interesting, that my identity got clearer. Mm -hmm. Because when you know who you are, you actually don't need thick skin it rolls off because you're like, oh, that's not, right. he just doesn't get me right. or they just don't understand right. or that's just not what something I'm capable of. That's not a part for me. So what were some of those lily pad moments? It seems like one of them, let's just say you you graduate from Brown and think, I think in 94, mm. 96 is your first movie. Um, 96 was Far Harbor. Far Harbor. I did an infinity commercial before that. Okay. I would say the lily pad moments are always the ones that people don't know about. Okay, yeah. So they're not the successes. They're okay. the ones that look like the failures. Okay. So there was a big moment when Gersh dropped me after all those auditions. I had done The Dish on Lifetime, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really an acting show. And I had let go of that because I wanted to do more acting. Mm -hmm. And they dropped me. They said I didn't pop when I went into a room. We should just tell people this is an Okay, Gersh is a talent agency. Yeah. It was a big deal that I was signed with yeah. Gersh after leaving college. And their feedback to me was I'm I seem like I'm exciting but when I go into a room as in an audition room the feedback in general is that I don't pop that nothing happens and look where I am now yeah I mean so, what are you supposed to even say to that if somebody says oh that I'll tell you. you what I said to yeah. that. a lot of tears <laughs> yeah, yeah I could barely get out of the office yeah. without the crocodile tears coming out of my eyes and that, that was, feels like a personal rejection right? it feels like a personal re rejection um and it was for a moment until I asked myself a couple questions and I remember crying really really hard and then asking asking myself, is this still something that I want to do? And did I actually think I could pop in a room? And if so, what was it going to take for me to do that? And it didn't take me trying to become something other than I was. It actually took me trying to discover who I was and figure out how to do that. So there was a big audition journey in that. And within that time period, I remember I was given the feedback, is there a way that I could take one conscious breath while I was in the room? Just one, just one. It could be at the end, in the middle, at the wherever, somewhere where I wasn't trying to do something. I was just trying to be. Because you, this is you thinking to yourself, maybe I'm just going in there and over thinking I don't stop. I think, th for I a think that's what happens. Yeah. It's like I would try and like do it good right. instead of being. Right. And so that started a really big pathway. The other was there were a couple of like real, I also asked myself in that moment, like if I wasn't having fun doing this, then what was the point? Right. And so I had to like change. And I think what happened, truthfully, if I look back now, is that I realized I was going into those auditions trying to get people to tell me that I was good enough. And so I was looking for external validation, mm -hmm. and that was creating a pressure that not only is that where I could get that answer, but it was creating a pressure that made it too scary to do what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so each piece kind of pulled together in those moments, and then eventually you get a role. Well, and so... What to you in your in your mind was the first big one? Lyricist Lounge. 
and and just when in the chronology was that? Lyricist Lounge was the first big one. There was an NBC movie of the week when I got here, and then Lyricist Lounge was an MTV sketch comedy show, and I had wanted it from the beginning. They did not cast me. They cast Sarah Jones, and then Sarah Jones decided to leave the show. Sarah Jones is an extraordinary performance artist and actress and comedian, and she's actually a friend of mine now. Okay. Um, she left the show, and I had, I guess, been their second choice, and so they brought me in. And I had a lot of characters at the time, and so I got to do some of those on the show, and that, I think, was my big break, because I started working, and when you get to work in a regular, consistent way, there's a confidence that gets created in you and a trust of your own process that allows you to be more. And then, obviously, Girlfriends was the big the sure. big moment. Now, both your first studio movie, which was Diane Keaton's Hanging Up, mm-hmm. and your first regular role on a TV series, as you just mentioned, Girlfriends, mm-hmm. those were both in 2000. So this- Is that prior- true? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even. Well, know at that. least they came out. They like maybe yeah, the movie yeah, yeah. Was no, it was around or, the same time. I yeah. guess that's why I'm so bad with time. Yeah. But the lyricist lounge was shortly before that. Lyricist lounge overlapped into girlfriends, and I almost they wanted me for girlfriends, and lyricist lounge and MTV almost didn't let me out of wow. my contract to do girlfriends, and I had to sit in a holding pattern for two days. Could have changed hoping everything. It, yes, hoping that they would allow me to do it. So for folks who need a reminder, yeah. on girlfriends, which ran. For 172 half-hour episodes between 2000 and 2008, first on UPN and then on the CW, Yep, you played Joan Clayton. Joan Carol Clayton. Neurotic lawyer. A neurotic lawyer with three really great friends who they fought, and they fought a lot. Now, <laughs> some people, I guess, at the time would, in trying to Figure out how to describe it, it or whatever, say that it was a black sex in the city. Was that overly reductive? I think we're all a bit overly reductive yes. when it comes to the diversity ability to describe things. Yes. yes. <laughs> so please let's let's therefore give you this opportunity. It was just a show about four girlfriends who yeah. were black and how they lived in the world and it was fantastic and I was a lawyer and it was wonderful to see four black female leads who were all of different skin tones, um, who all had different lives and who loved and connected to each other. And it was very identifiable for many, many, many people. It is still a favorite, which I think is wonderful um, and sort of blows me away. It was one of the greatest parts of my life and career. It was eight years. It's a very long time. Yeah. Mara Brock-Akeel created the show. I'm still friends with her. She's extraordinary. She's created many other great things. And it was a huge, as I said, part of my career in life. I, I became a woman while doing that show. And then, I mean, those were pivotal years. And also, maybe was this your first real opportunity as an actress to show your comedic chops? Because there's a lot of wasn't there quite a bit of physical? I mean, I was the lead of a comedy. Yeah, yeah. no, but what I'm saying is <laughs> like just that you could that you could really not just you're not also doing the same kind of comedy I mean, throughout I think, those years. I think a lot of things happen. I don't know what happened externally, yeah. but I know for me that I went from being someone who might have had some talent to learning how to be a working actor and learning how to be a working comedic actor. I learned how to take what was naturally mine and turn it into an actual craft that I could use that could be caught on film mm-hmm. because you do multiple takes yeah. that and there's nothing like the repetition of 172 episodes, 172 table reads, 172 nights in front of a studio audience. You guys did do it in front of a live. We did a studio audience for almost all of the episodes. Wow. You know, I became a seasoned pro. Wow. And I did not walk into that show that way. So when those eight years were over Mm. and 
you've enjoyed the regular, steady, good work <laughs> for that amount of time. Yeah. And now you're back in the pool of By boats. the way, not knowing every year if we were going to get picked up. It's not like we It was knew. a year-to-year -year kind of Oh, situation. it was a year-to-year. -year. It was like a month-to-month -month lease. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when you're, when you're back out there now mm -hmm. and not necessarily going right to work on something else or something else of remotely comparable character you know it can't mm -hmm. be caliber every time no it can't be but also let's just frame that within the context and the reality of our industry right. as a black actress in the early aughts in the early aughts you know i mean let, let me put it this way yeah when i got onto blackish i was doing adr i was doing looping so fixing my voice in places that the mic did not catch me for those that don't know what that would be with the sound people mm -hmm. And this head of the sound department said, it's, I mean, like, where did you come from? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, I mean, no one's ever seen you before. And I said, oh, no, I, I've, I've been working, you know. And he time. said, like, but never on a, like, primetime show. And I said, yeah, I have. And he said, but, like, never on a comedy. And I said, no, I have. <laughs> he's like, but, I mean, you know, you're, like, pretty new. And I said, He's like, you're you're a discovery for you. And I was like, no, not, not really. <laughs> I said, not really. But I mean, right. I appreciate the compliment, right. you know. And he was like, well, what have you done? And I said, girlfriends. Yeah. And he said, what's that? Right. So we are in a segregated industry. You know, there's a reason that I am the first black female actress nominated for an Emmy in 30 some odd years. Oh, yeah. And that I'm the first that, like that, that yeah. won a Golden Globe yeah. in 30 some odd years. Yeah. You know, I think that's a comment on many pieces of our industry mm -hmm. and our world and our country. But so when I finished Girlfriends, I think there was an expectation for myself after all of the hard work that I'd done. Right. Not not no other expectation other than I felt very proud of the fact that I had worked incredibly hard yeah. for eight years yeah. as the lead of a show that, you know, certain things would open. I don't know. Certain doors would open. And this was before TV was fragmented into as many channels and streaming things oh, and, yeah. as it is now. So just to come back to your point about the sound guy on Blackish, I mean, people were already kind of in their corners of the audience before we had 500 channels mm -hmm. to choose from. So it's just interesting that you, because I, I think that UPN, we were just doing a, a story actually in the last month here about how there is in a lot of ways more diversity now than there's been and particularly in comedy, which was interesting but for years, you know, UPN was where the black comedies were. Yeah, I mean, it was WB, then it was UPN. Yeah. I mean, and but there was a fallout from like Cosby. There's been like a fallout in terms of the stories that we're sharing on television. And diversity, by the way, does not mean black. Diversity mm. means all of it. It mm -hmm. means age. It means sex. It means right. gender. It like uh, gender. Jex, gender yeah. Jexer. <laughs> We what got, is, I got you. you know what? To tell you the truth, that might be a new term. We got it. We got it. Jexer. But, you know, uh, it's weight. It's height. It's yeah. like diversity. It's yeah. like what people look like. You right. know what I mean? And who we are and the stories that we have to bring to the table. So, yeah, there's been. Anyway, so after Girlfriends, the truth is, and here's the reality of it for me. First of all, it took me a minute to, like, catch my breath. Yeah. And I gave myself that time. Yeah. And I wanted to have that time. And on top of that, I saved really well. I saved my money. And so for me, success is the freedom to choose. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I was able to sort of decide where I wanted to look. It didn't mean that parts were being offered to me. Mm -hmm. It just meant that I could take a second to decide what I wanted to audition for. Did you think there was a chance that you would not get another series? Sure. Sure. I mean, the reality is that the 
some of the greatest careers span 10 years. Yeah. My show had run eight years. Eight already, yeah. So I didn't know what would be next or if there would be a next. So the fact that I am on another, which knock on wood, yeah. could be long running, yeah. but show that people are watching is a unusual, miracle yeah. and unusual. Yeah. And I have I am one of very few. For sure. And just to note, though, so what, what when you did act in those in-between years, yeah. it was there. I think there were I saw like Private TV practice, movies and stuff, TV movies, but basically mostly a few episodes of something here yeah. or there. Right. Uh-huh. And in fact, one thing I just wanted to mm-hmm. know, because I thought it was interesting. You did a four episode arc of CSI on which you played, played the Lord. estranged wife oh, of a Lord. character played by the actor who now plays your father-in-law. <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. That's so, yeah. And I recently did a podcast <laughs> playing his wife again. Did you really? Yes. Well, so don't try to keep track of this. Don't try home, and keep folks. We're yes. actors, people. <laughs> right. That's what it is. But I will say that I did a lot of fun, small things here and there. But mostly what I did was work on other parts of my craft. I have character study work that I do that's like performance art stuff and characters. Yeah. And I did a lot of that. I performed as some of my characters for a while. I did I did a lot of that kind of exploration, which is really fun and I think needed. Because in essence, as an actor, not in essence, mm-hmm. I am an artist. Mm-hmm. And I have a well from which I draw. And life comes from living. And so I did some living. And are these some of the same characters that we now see on your social? Some of them. Yeah. yeah. Some have not been seen. Yeah. I performed as some of them. A lot of them, I don't really let them live on social media, yeah. but it but sounds yeah. like you could have been a great SNL person early on. That too, was, right? that was an early dream. Was sir. It? Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay. Did yeah. you ever like, how does, I guess they have I've to come tried out for you many or? a time. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, I, that didn't happen. Didn't happen. Okay. No. <laughs> I read that one, one last thing about that in between era is yeah. I read that there was once a note that went out, people were seeking a Tracy Ellis Ross type. Yes, but they didn't want to see you. But they didn't want to see you. (laughs) What the hell? I don't even remember what that was for, but yes, isn't that hilarious? Oh my God. So you just see this and you contact them. A friend had sent it to me, and so I called my agents, and then the response was, no, they don't want to see you. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? That is so fucked up. I'm like, I bet you I could play it really well. This industry is hilarious. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's funny. Okay, so (laughs) the story goes, and correct me if any of this is wrong, that Kenya Barris, when he was creating Blackish, not only drew a lot from his own life, including having a, I believe, biracial wife named Dr. Rainbow. Her name is Rainbow, um, but they call her Bo, yes. Okay, but also that in the creation of the show, he had you in mind for the part Mm. from the start. Mm. And so I guess the two questions are, did you even know each other before? Mm -hmm. And also, is that order of events and, you know, as you understand that, yeah. Kenya, Kenya Barris was a writer on Girlfriends. (laughs) Did not realize that. Yes. Wow, so you guys really go We have known each other for a long time. I have read the majority of his pilots and he did write this he says for me Mm -hmm. i don't ever believe that because of my experience with the tracy ellis ross type and them not even wanting to see me plus i guess you had to audition still well i did yes i did audition because abc yes obviously yes but you've missed a whole beat though please i produced and starred in a show for bet called read between the lines and i did 23 episodes of that and then I left that show to go do a pilot that did not get picked up. Mm-hmm. And then things always happen for a reason. I was so disappointed that pilot didn't get picked up. Mm-hmm. And then Blackish came around. And the way it first crossed your radar was he 
send you a note or something? Or he what was- sent me the script okay. and said, I want you to play this. And I did what I always do, which is, all right, let's see if the real audition comes yeah. in. You know what I mean? <laughs> and my philosophy on auditioning, because people are always like, what do you mean you had to audition? First of all, my philosophy on auditioning is if I think I can go in there and do what I do, go audition because there's always somebody who's willing to audition. Mm -hmm. And if I don't get the part, I will make a new fan. And it's absolutely fine. Auditioning is part of my job. It is great to get offered things. And I always welcome offers. (laughs) I'm not saying that I won't, I won't take offers. Does everyone hear me? I don't have to audition. You've seen a lot of my work and you pretty much know what I'm capable of. Okay. But if there is something that perhaps you know, I need to audition for, I will audition. Now, this was also before two Emmy nominations and a Golden Globe. Right. So Maybe that, I don't have to yeah, audition I anymore. I don't know. Over. I don't know. I don't know. But it's part of being an actor. Right. Do you know what I mean? My you're job, also not really like seeking another TV show. Not right now, no. Moment, but, so. you know, I mean, my job is to transform into somebody else or yeah. to breathe life into a role. And if somebody doesn't know that that would happen, sometimes I think you do have to audition. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that like at this point in my career... I would hope there's some imagination that they could be like, no, she'll be good at that. But, right. you know, I didn't mind early on. And so you go in. For so the I audition. go in for the audition. And obviously it wasn't like it was a producer session. Kenya, all of them were in there. I'm friends with all of them. I know all of them. And it was Valentine's Day. I went in and the magic. And honestly, everybody knows this story, but I'll just say it in a mm-hmm. nutshell. I did not like Anthony. I had worked with him in the past. I thought he was an asshole. Wow, because I actually, I didn't come across that prepping. So what what had been your interaction? Anthony, if you know Anthony, he has a gruff exterior and he does not have an inner governor. And Anthony says stuff that is not that appropriate all the time. Like everybody knows it's part of why he's funny. It's it's like it's part of the ace in his deck, but it's also like, oh my God. And if you don't know him, um, it can come across rudely. Mm -hmm. And he had said some things to me in the past that I did not like. Wow. And I didn't like him. I didn't like him. But I knew Kenya and I knew all the other people involved and I was like, I will go in. And from the moment I walked in for that audition, I was like, oh, there's magic here. Like magic. Was he, was Anthony also present? Yeah, we were, we were a screen test. I got Of sorts. Like chemistry. Yeah. And he, from that moment, I was like, oh, this is magic. Like it, it, Everything I thought I knew about the character transformed into, oh, I know who this woman is because of this. Like, it was it was fantastic. Let's go back for a second, though. Did uh-huh. he remember you, that you guys had a past interaction? Yeah, and- he didn't know I didn't like him. We talk about it now. You do. It's very funny. And I will tell you, I was wrong. Or not that I was wrong. Um, I have a different experience yeah. of, now, of him now. He is one of my absolute favorite people. I love working with that man so much. He grows on you. He does. Well, he and some people love him right off. Yeah. He just, he rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Sure. But he is a wonderful working partner. We both work very similarly. We're both, if we're ever late, it's usually five to 10 minutes. We both learn lines the same way. We both play when we're on camera the same way. I mean, it's just fantastic. Well, and one of the interesting things about your show is that there aren't that many comedies where the couple actually likes each other. I love that part of it. 
I, it's one of the things that drew me to the script mm-hmm. originally is that the comedy between this couple did not come from them rolling their eyes at each other. And so the chemistry is very real for the two of us. I mean, I love that man. Mm-hmm. I love him. Mm-hmm. People all, everyone's always like, you guys should be together. I'm like, no, we absolutely should not. <laughs> like that. You're, is, they're saying that you and Anthony should be in together. real life. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, he's married. <laughs> Second of all, no, I don't love Anthony that way. Like I, I love Anthony. Like right. I love that man. Right. Right. He has got my back. I yeah. have got his back when we are playing acting presenting an award whatever it is we will not let each other fall like we have each other and there is a a deep respect that we have for each other and a connection that we can call each other on stuff when something's not you know whatever that is but do i want to be with him in real life no do i know where he lives no (laughs) do i have do we talk on the i mean like we spend so much time together at work but he's never been to my house i've never been to his house no it's hilarious that is funny it's hilarious are you both in la yeah, we both live in LA. Oh, I have no so idea where he we're lives. We're gonna set up a first of all, a we get to work at five in the morning <laughs> and we leave so late. Like we work right. these thirteen hour days. Right. Like by the time we're gone, I'm like, get away from right. me. Of course. <laughs> you know. But so yeah. The reference that I think has come up the most often for people when they especially when Blackish was new and they're trying to contextualize it, was this is sort of a modern day Cosby show. They were saying the family structure, the except that as one person, I guess as NPR wrote, quote Unlike the Huxtables, who were clearly well-off but only acknowledged it very, very rarely, the Johnsons, who are starring in a much broader show, talk about it a lot and talk about how it affects their kids, close quote. But the idea that, do you see the connective threads between The Cosby Show and yours and also between Felicia Rashad's character on The Cosby Show, Claire Huxtable, and yours? I understand the comparison. Yeah. I get it. I also understood why Girlfriends was the black sex right. in the city. Like, I, I get it. Right. And Cosby Show was epic. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like, It was epic. something you were into? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. <laughs> so, I don't mind the reference. Right. I get the reference and I don't mind the reference. I think our show is more in the vein of a Norman Lear show mm-hmm. than a Cosby Show. Who, by the way, I spoke to last week for a story and says... Kenya Barris, in his opinion, is as great as anybody who's done this. He's fantastic. You know, Kenya is fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, as I said, I understand it, and I get it, and it doesn't bother me. But I also don't think it's a great reference in terms of what you're going to get when you watch our show. Is there a different show you would reference? Yeah, I think Norman Lear shows. So just collectively. I think a collective sort of Norman Lear tone. Yeah. Where there's a reverence. Like, we go there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this is not about, like, answering questions or pushing up against stereotypes. It's more about the thing that's interesting to me about our show is it's from the inside. So this is not somebody telling you who this family is. This is us showing you being this family. That's the voiceover. And that's, that's the deal, right? right? So we are not a family who happens to be black. We are a black family, but our show is not about us being black. Right. We just deal with whatever this family would deal with, but we're also pushing the envelope on everything. Yeah. So it's not about us being appropriate or trying to push up against what the world thinks black people are. <laughs> it's just this is this is this weird kooky family and how we kind of deal with stuff. When did you first realize that it was working? I thought it was working in the pilot. You saw it right away. Okay. Yeah, I mean the experience of it. Like we felt like a family from the first table read, I was like, "Oh, this is <laughs> this is ridiculous." Wow. But you know, there's so many good shows that don't work. There's so many good shows that people don't watch. 
the thing about TV is it's a collaborative art and it requires so many different things to make it work. ABC has been incredibly supportive network and studio of making sure that people know where to find our show, of making sure that our show is put in the right place, you know, in the programming lineup, making sure that we're supported in telling the stories that we want to tell. And so that's a big part of it. Our cast, like there's so many different pieces. I think the timing somehow was just like perfect. Yeah. And Um, of one era of our country, the beginning of this, whatever we're in now. Sort of toggling the two, I think has been really important. All of those things. So you knew it was working early on. When did you know that it was clicking in the real world? What were the... I don't think that happened until season two. But were there some moments, I mean, there's one of them has got to be Obama at the White House Correspondents Dinner talking about you guys. Like, I mean, that there are a, a few moment. other. What other moments? Because I can Honestly, see when you're in the bubble, maybe you don't know if people are like everybody tells you it's great. No, I mean, first of all, people don't tell us. We're so no. busy working. No one's telling everyone anything's okay. great. There's none of that going on. Okay. We're like, did we get it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> did we get it? Can right. we move on to right. the next scene? Like, that's what's going on at work. Like, oh my God, more? Right. I think for me, like, I don't really pay attention to that kind of stuff. I think for me, it was starting to hear the reactions from people when I was out in the world and the kind of reactions. Oh my God, I'm so sorry to interrupt you at dinner, but I just want you to know that my 12-year-old son won't do anything with me, but we watch your show together. Wow. And then we sit and talk afterwards. Oh my God, this is, I can't believe I'm seeing you. Oh my God, I was just telling my husband last night that that scene, it was like exactly the argument we had. And you said it better than I could have said it. Or, oh my God, we wait and watch your show on Friday at six o'clock with my mom and my kids. And we all watch together. And these are all different kinds of people, all different colors, all different shapes and sizes, all different economic backgrounds, or like 11 year old white boys. <laughs> who not that and by the way you know I'm mixed and I don't usually categorize in no, that sense fine. but there's a very sweet thing when like a group of 11 year old white boys come up to me on Larchmont and are like oh my god oh my god I love your show I love your show can we take a picture like it's adorable you know what I mean like that's adorable and it's also at the same time it's adorable but the other thing that I get landed with is oh we just did a story an episode about the n-word and those 11 year old boys might not understand or know or have understood or known the historical context behind that word and now they they do. And our show has this ability to start conversation within families, within communities that is not knocking anyone over the head with a right or a wrong way to have conversations or to talk about these subjects or what these subjects should mean, but instead sort of poses that information for everybody to just like start the dialogue going. And I love that. Well, so let's, let's continue where you're, what you're referring to here is that the show has dealt with some edgy, controversial things. The the Word, which is the episode that deals with the N-word, was the season two premiere. Mm-hmm. Hope was the 16th episode of season two. This looks at police brutality against mm-hmm. members of the black community. And then your Emmy submission for this year is being biracial, being biracial mm-hmm. about a biracial person, your character, you, yes. your character, who has mixed emotions when her own son finally finds a girlfriend, but... The girlfriend happens to be white. Yeah. So these are the kinds of things that you guys are talking about. And I wondered, what was the first time you saw a script from your writers and realized, oh, wow, so these guys are really going to go right up to sort of the edge? I actually don't remember. And I knew that that's what we were going to do. I know Kenya and I've known Kenya. And it's part of what I think is so special about our show and special about him is not only his willingness to dive into those issues and unpack them, but also the way he does that. 
I mean, Kenya is a naturally funny guy, and his humor comes from a very specific vantage point and a very specific experience that he's had. And so I knew that we were going to like dive into this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's an on the edge kind of guy. Like that's like kind of who he is. So it wasn't a shock to me. What has been the most pleasant of surprises is the way we enter the issues. Like the N word episode, I knew we were doing it, but I had no idea how we were going to touch it. And the fact that we entered it through Jack, the youngest, adorable, sweet little kid, saying the N-word in a talent show (laughs) was genius to me. Well, he was doing Kanye, right? Yeah, he was doing Kanye, the Kanye Jamie Foxx song. And the other thing, you know, every time we deal with these issues, the way we enter them is always perfectly within the DNA of our show. The fact that the Being Bo Racial episode, the fact that my character, this liberal, like, deep-hearted, doting mother would have a feminist, like, all of this, would have an issue with her son dating a white girl was, like, so unexpected and already started the story on its heels, you know? Our writers are amazing. One of the interviews of yours from the past that I came across, I think it's maybe two years old, you were speaking to bust.com mm-hmm. and somehow it came up. You said, quote, I've been begging the producers for an episode where Bo actually gets to explore her own relationship to being a woman of mixed race, close quote. Oh, really? Is that true? Yeah. Oh, there you go. So do you think the writers were listening or that's just a coincidence that that finally got explored? Well, who knows? Who knows? They, it was never a conversation like, This is something I would like you to... First of all, I have not... I don't know that... I mean, I guess I was exaggerating or something. I don't know. I don't know that I beg the writers for anything. I'm pleasantly surprised no you're saying the producers but that's the producers but I, but I don't know that I was begging yeah sure no whatever yeah but, and that's I what I mean, mean I think yeah, I was yeah, yeah. being you know but I mean it was hyperbolic. something that, that you were word? hoping for yeah hoping for same thing like this year I'm like maybe I could get some friends yeah maybe Bo could get like a friend <laughs> I mean the thing is I joke about all those things and I would love all of those things but I think the scripts that they write are incredible you know what I mean like they 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 know what they're doing up there but they also I guess in this case with being biracial, mm-hmm. they know, hey, we have an actress here, our lead actress, who has obviously lived the same experience. But, you know, but they don't write it for my... I'm, I'm not playing me. But, no, of course. But wasn't there something here where... Didn't I read that you had a conversation with Kenya and then you maybe happened to go into the writer's room and these things were discussed? Well, the the Being Bo Racial episode, they totally broke, had nothing to do with me. Okay. There was one sticking point they were having in the room about something and they did I came in and sort of they just asked me my experience around that thing so they could land on where they wanted to be but honestly I am an actor on the show in that capacity and I am vocal when we get on set with a script or after a table read about nuance and stuff like that but the way a story is told and gonna be broken and all of that really comes from them was the cool part about that episode or or the coolest part in a way for you that aside from the fact that it's dealing with subject matter that's of interest to you and whatever that here we are actually for the first time I think hearing the voiceover of the episode as (laughs) bows rather than Mm -hmm. drays I mean Mm -hmm. in a way it's like the you know they talk about the female gaze or the male gaze Mm -hmm. and the difference here I think it changes the whole perspective It did. I think it did. But the show is what it is. It's still, I I don't know that that episode necessarily, I mean, I I love that you said that and bring that up. I don't think Blackish really explores the male gaze. No, I'm not. I'm just not not, not what I'm going. I'm saying just as like the idea of the perspective. Uh I mean, 
Yes, that was a very interesting point. And I do think that one of the things that I find very interesting about the show that is not talked about that I talk about because it's one of the things that I find interesting in how I'm playing this character is one of the underlying currents of our show is what kind of woman Bo is. And because our show is called Blackish and we are known for dealing with race and culture and identity and those kinds of things, it's not always talked about. Mm -hmm. And it's also not always at the forefront of the stories that we're telling. But there is a way that I am very consciously, specifically playing Bo that really is expanding the way a female, the wife role is in traditional sitcom. This is a traditional show. It is told through Dre's eyes. It couldn't be more clearly told through his eyes. He does the voiceover. Mm -hmm. There's stories that are told through his eyes. Usually that means that the wife becomes wife wallpaper, Mm -hmm. and she is a prop in his world, and she is an extension of his story. And although the stories are still told through his eyes, Bo is a very full person. And it's not interesting that she's a wife. It's not interesting that she is a mother. It's not interesting that she is a working mom or that she works or that she's a doctor. What's interesting is that she is all of those things. Mm -hmm. And what I consciously try and do when I enter a scene, when I am in a story, is know that I have a story that wasn't on screen and make sure that I bring that to the small, to the moments when I am. So you've really, either independently or with Kenya, come up with a bigger backstory than we ever know. I just ask why a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just doing something to service a story. I'm doing something to service my character's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it, it's not that I come up with a major backstory. I just know what my point of view is. And I'm very conscious of what kind of story I'm telling and how, and not being the, that, you know, whining, yelling wife. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, and that's why it's, it was very important to me that I am based in, I love my husband. Mm-hmm. I actually love how, freaking limited and weird he is Mm -hmm. and that seems to be what he loves about me Mm -hmm. how responsive are you guys able to be to current events so let's say that obviously we've seen stuff about police brutality Mm. that's been around for decades but Mm -hmm. it really picked up in the last few years you guys were on top of it it didn't pick up the maybe we became more attention the attention on it picked up so let's say that somebody wanted to do something an episode that dealt just hypothetically with charlottesville Mm mm-hmm how quickly do you guys turn these episodes around? That is really a Kenya question. Okay. And I think, you know, it all, I think anything we deal with has to do with how does this fit into the structure of our show and this and who this family is more than trying to be topical. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we consciously are topical. Mm-hmm. I think we consciously are honest, which is a big difference, I think. A year ago, as you mentioned, you got your first Emmy nomination mm-hmm. for in the category of Best Actress in a Comedy Series. The nominees were revealed by none other than Mr. Anthony Anderson, who got very excited. Yes. I was home screaming myself. Okay, that's where we're going. So when you heard him call your name, how did you react? That's the answer to that. But also when you, I don't know if you knew this off the bat or you had to read about this, but you were the first black woman to be nominated in that category in 30 years. But you're also one of only five women of color, I guess five black women ever to be nominated in that category. You've now been twice, but like. That's insane. Okay, so there's that set. Then we go to Golden Globes, which first black actress to win in 34 years. But the point is, it's been a long <laughs> time. <laughs> so let's let's talk about the Golden Globe, though, because oh I don't know that you, you seemed... First of all, I think for season one, I don't think they even nominated you or a lot of... No, I don't know if the show, show or anything. No. Season two, you're there, and... And then I win. You win. Yeah. What did you make of that? It was amazing. You know, the truth is that... 
my personal feelings about it and my personal experience sort of took a back seat to the historical context of what was happening and the larger meaning of what was in that experience for me, which I think is why what came out of my mouth came out of my mouth. You know, I, I don't think that awards validate an experience, validate a talent, a craft, but they are also fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I like getting picked. <laughs> I like winning. Like, this is all, these are all great things. Right. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. But they also have like a real strategic importance in our industry. Yeah. There is something very real that occurs there. And there is an amplified effect that happens from that. Sometimes keeps the show on the air. Sometimes keeps the show on the air, but also opens up doors in many other places in a career Mm -hmm. that one doesn't even realize are a part of that. You know what I mean? So I think my feeling about the whole thing was not necessarily personal, but what is this saying about our industry and the stories that we're telling. And please know that in that 35 years, there have been many a talented other black woman. And I am a representative of many black women out in their lives being leads across communities in this country everywhere that have been doing interesting and extraordinary things and have not been acknowledged for those. And so I felt that in the same way when I see a person win something that I'm like, oh, God, like, I feel like it's me. I feel like I felt like I was a lot of other people. And it was not just mine. I felt like it was a collective experience. And I've said it about the second nomination for the Emmy this time. I stand on the shoulders of so many and I stand shoulder to shoulder with so many that are not only deserving of this, but make it possible for me to be in this place that never had any light shined on them. And so that is what is more important to me about this than how cool it is to win or to be chosen to be in a category that I could win. And at the same time, like, I like winning dodgeball. You know what I mean? I was gonna, well, I was going to say, so are, are you going to be the one that finally takes down Julia Louis-Dreyfus here? Who the hell knows? <laughs> Who the she's hell on knows? She's on a run. It's she's on a run. And she's a yeah. goddess. Oh, yeah. um, she's extraordinary. She's, great. she's amazing. You know, but would I like to win? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last win. question. Yeah, okay. As we've established, it's not that you were not working at a high level for many years in this business, but I think you reached the largest audience that you've reached Mm -hmm. later than most people do in a career, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you could go back and change that Mm -mm. and have that happen earlier, Mm -mm. you would not? I would not. Absolutely not. Why? I really think my life has taken on a lovely path and I trust its timing. I feel very equipped for what is here in my life. I feel very right-sized within it and prepared to utilize it to continue to expand on my dreams, you know, and also, and more importantly, to take this platform to circle back to what I started with in the beginning. You know, you said, what was it about being a performer and being on stage that was interesting to me? And what I saw in my mom, and I feel like I have built on for myself in my own unique and individual way, is to have a platform to do something with, to actually expand ideas, change ideas, give people a fuller relationship to a different humanity. And that to me is something that I don't know I would have been prepared to do earlier, you know, and and I feel like that is the 
that's the beauty of being in this kind of position is that if there's light shining on you, you actually turn so that that light can shine on so many other things that need need light and aren't getting them, you know, sort of allowing it as a, a moment of service as opposed to a moment of ego. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this and congratulations. Very excited to keep watching. Thank you so much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.